interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to Interrupted, the podcast of the West Star Institute, which is dedicated to advancing scholarship on the history and evolution of Christianity while exploring issues that matter to society and culture. Interrupting, enriching, and disturbing conventional religious discourse in the public square. Interrupted brings the expertise of West Star scholars, guests, and practitioners to bear on important issues in the world today. Hello, my name is Matthew Baker, and I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast. The title for this episode of Interrupted is Denial Interrupted, and what you'll hear is a roundtable conversation among seven Westar scholars and practitioners on the way denial has been operative in recent events and trends in American society and culture. The conversation was organized by the Westar Think Tank. First, you'll hear from Jordan Miller, in addition to being a co-host and producer of the podcast, He's also one of the co-chairs of the Westar Institute Seminar on God and the Human Future, and a member of the Westar Think Tank. You'll then hear from Alan Richard from Realistic Living in Bonham, Texas, Deborah Niederer-Saxon from Butler University and Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis, Andrew Oberg from the University of Kochi in Japan, David Galston, the Executive Director of Westar, who is in Ontario, Julia Kahn from Massachusetts, who is Westar's Praxis Forum co-chair and also a member of the Think Tank. And last but not least, Ellie Elliott, another Westar Think Tank member who joined in from Montana. Have a look at the show notes where we'll index where the different talks appear in this episode so you can jump around a little bit and find what you're looking for a bit quicker, uh, if you'd like. All right, here is Denial Interrupted. I'm Jordan Miller. And I wanted to open with a few words about denial. Um, And first, I wanted to say that denial is a symptom, not a cause. It feeds back, but it's not an origin in itself. Denial is a defense mechanism. It refuses to accept reality, which then protects the denier from having to reckon with events in the world. It's a refusal, a protection from pain or trauma. Denial has effects on the world, but it is not the origin of those effects. So as such, denial is not inherently harmful in itself. It can be preservative. So in focusing on denial itself, it's easy to miss the point. Further, it's rare to find someone for whom the accusation of being in denial prompts their recognition of reality. Illuminating denial is limited in its usefulness without recognizing its underlying material causes. It does not make sense to treat denial for the same reason that one does not treat a fever. The best that can be done is to try to mitigate the symptoms until, that is, one treats the infection that causes the fever. So we should stop thinking of climate change denial or conspiracy theory or hypocrisy as cognitive or intellectual deficits. They're not lacking in facts or information. They're investments. Denial is an investment. What looks like denial or hypocrisy from the outside may not be so from within a particular discourse that generates that denial. 
one person's denial is another person's affirmation, in other words. So it's important to remember that what one believes is not merely an intellectual affair, a cognitive attachment to certain positions and overall discourses. What one believes is rather felt. It's located in one's body. And that goes for religion and politics as well. So instead of emphasizing the symptom of denial, of hypocrisy, of conspiracy theory and dishonesty, I suggest that it's more useful and indeed more effective to emphasize the material conditions in the world that make denial, hypocrisy, conspiracy theory and dishonesty possible or even desirable, even potentially necessary. I'm Alan Richard, a resident scholar at the nonprofit uh, educational organization Realistic Living in Bonham, Texas, uh, Westar Scholar for the Seminar on God and the Human Future and the Christ Seminar. Uh, thank you to the organizers, scholars, and fellow participants. I want to briefly touch on three elements in American evangelicalism that first clustered together in the post-Civil War, post-Reconstruction era and have remained together through various manifestations of evangelical denial and conspiracy theorizing. Republican perspicuity is the oldest, dating from the Second Great Awakening. It is the conviction that anyone possessing common sense and the Holy Spirit can understand the Bible's application to current affairs unambiguously without outside authority. The Civil War was a crisis for Republican perspicuity. The second element, alternative expertise, applied methods of post-bellum corporate law, industrial engineering, and marketing, a new common sense to Bible self-study, rivaling the SBL and making Bible study feel plain and reliable again, with just a few handy tools, increasingly familiar, informed, to anyone in contact with the land-grant colleges that were being funded at the same time. Premillennial dispensationalism was the price of the ticket for using the tools of alternative expertise to recover Republican perspicuity, since it was embedded in the design of these tools. For instance, the Schofield Reference Bible's divisions and chapter titles, its topical chain references, are tools that suture the reader to premillennial dispensationalism. This dispensationalism immediately attaches fearful apocalyptic significance to some specific things, strong central governments like the one that emerged during the Civil War, radical democratizing movements like the movement of the freedmen during Reconstruction and the movement of immigrant labor thereafter, and new religious others, and because this attachment is entailed by the Schofieldian division of scripture, it remains fixated on these signs. The aforementioned three interdependent elements promoted by industrial investors from the Gilded Age onward prepared the soil for over a century of vast, flexible conspiracy theories tied to a common spine and reinforced by the rewards of discovering for yourself, quote unquote and for their reproduction and accumulation in Baroque forms as generations of white American evangelical donors and consumers 
fled realities they could not face and acts they could not acknowledge. I am Deborah Niederer Saxon, and I currently teach in Indianapolis, both at Butler University, where I am teaching uh, the history of Christianities with undergraduates for the first time, and also at Christian Theological Seminary. And um, I've been involved in Westar for a number of years now, and I'm very pleased to be a part of the History of Christianity seminar. And also, I have the privilege right now of serving on the West Star Board of Directors as the vice chair. And I've been thinking about all the many different things that are being denied. I always approach this topic from uh, the point of view of someone who's very interested in discourse and in the way that things get talked about. And I'm always particularly interested in how women get represented and also uh, all issues respecting gender, whether that's back in time historically or whether that's on the contemporary scene. And I've been really struck this spring by how much denial there is by leaders of certain denominations of where the women in their congregations are. Just yesterday, there was a long article that was in several newspapers about women questioning their roles within the Southern Baptist Convention. And I uh, come from a Baptist heritage and so I was interested by this article and I was, I was really thinking about how there seems to be a complete disregard, uh, complete insensitivity to where the women are at. And I think sometimes that those of us who are involved in more liberal denominations or groups or organizations uh, don't really take this to heart. In, in many ways, it's a, a problem that's been solved for us. But the vast majority of the world's Christians still do not affirm women's leadership in the highest roles in their organizations. And so I was thinking about this article because a little bit earlier this semester with my undergraduates, we came across an article where on January 22nd, two days after the inauguration, a Southern Baptist pastor in Texas and I'm also from Texas, so, you know, Southern Baptist Heritage, Texas, so I'm talking about my own here, um, referred to Kamala Harris as a Jezebel. And my students all knew who Kamala Harris was. They didn't necessarily know who Jezebel was, but they, they found it interesting. And actually, as I started kind of looking and doing some research about it, I realized that the term Jezebel is being applied to women. Um, it's been a racist trope to refer to sexually promiscuous black women. And of course it goes all the way back to the Bible where Jezebel is seen as this evil woman who um, was married to King Ahab and, and led him into idol worship. 
and she suffers a really vicious death. She's actually her, she's thrown out a window and, and her corpse is eaten by dogs, basically. So it's an issue that, that I think needs to be raised to talk about what is happening that such sensitivity um, to women's real needs to be in places of leadership within their congregations is being denied because uh, when women are denied by pastors in the pulpit um, for their leadership roles in society, it also affects the way that women feel they are seen in their congregations. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, my name is Andrew Oberg. Uh, at the moment, I teach at the University of Kochi. I think most of the denial that we're seeing uh, is coming out of intuitive and emotional reactions. And this is kind of what uh, Jordan was mentioning in his opening statement. Uh, and so I think to help us deal with the sources of this, it might, might be beneficial to look at, uh, at the self. And I assume that most of you are familiar with the, the two-layered mental model that uh, people like Daniel Kahneman or Jonathan Haidt have made quite well known. Uh, and so on my analysis, I, I, I find that the self operating at that first level, the system one, as it's called. And I separate the self. I think the self can be separated out from personal identity and whole person issues. I think that those are distinct, although they, of course, interact. Um, and that the self itself, this, this core emotional, intuitive, uh, psychological posit, uh, is, is automatic and it, it, it's reactive. And it's, it's made of uh, self-conscious thoughts, which are reflective, uh, self-reflective as well. And then these kinds of core elements that, that we all inherit um, through the default of, you know, the genetic lottery or where you happen to be born, when you happen to be born, uh, socioeconomics, all of these things that we cannot control, but that play such massive, massive roles in the people we become. So I think a lot, a lot of the denial is rooted in reactions that stem out of that layer, that, that really core level of the self. Um, and so I think, therefore, uh, to respond to people whom we think might be in denial or uh, perhaps we feel like we're not able to get through to or are being unreasonable or, or whatever uh, our judgment happens to be. I think uh, that what we need to do, first of all, is to remove that threat that they're feeling uh, to the self. And that um, can be done through uh, what I am going to term a kind of a rational empathy. And so on the two-layer model, you've got the, the, the core reaction, automatic, uh, effortless, and then you've got the system two, which is rational and effortful and laborious and time-consuming and all these things. And so I think to employ one's rational empathy is to use your, your system two, your thinking, to approach the system one intuitions and, and emotional reactions of the uh, this, would be, this would entail like rationally based counterproposals um, and reassuring that person's self, uh, whatever identity markers they're displaying about their self, reassuring those, uh, whether you agree with them or not, reassuring them. And then 
trying to use one's own rational uh, system too to present some ideas that that might be other than um, other than what you're what you're seeing. Uh, now, and I think it's very important not to use appeals to authority in this because authority uh, figures automatically become ciphers and symbols for identity markers. Uh, and if a person's identity is based on something other than uh, the authorities that you're citing, you'll get those same automatic, intuitive, and, and probably quite strong emotional reactions. Uh, so, for example, if someone is, you know, strongly against wearing a facial mask, uh, you wouldn't want to say, well, Dr. Fauci says we need to. Uh, because that would automatically just call up all of these self-identity, emotional, intuitive reactions. And so I think if we can, first of all, understand uh, where the other person is coming from, uh, and, and that being the level of the self, that core intuitive, emotional level. And then if we can use our own rationality, our system to, uh, to first of all, support that person's self-identity, whether we agree with it or not, and then to approach it in a non-threatening manner. I think that might be at least one potential opening uh, for dialogue. Thank you. Now you'll hear from David Galston, Westar Institute's executive director. Everyone takes a slightly different approach to this question and so I'm going to rely on philosophy because that's my background and just a touch of Immanuel Kant if you don't mind and I hope it's not complicated but I want to uh, stress that I think one of the problems we have in society today is the heritage of modernity and that heritage I think is taking revenge on postmodernity in the form of denial, postmodernity is what is emerging as our culture. So moder modern thought was um, getting to the single truth of something, the identity of a thing. So for example, the Oedipus complex was used to uh, get at the uh, principle of sexual deviancy. That was a very modern approach to psychology. Uh, but postmodern thought doesn't do this. It rather says that things come in packages and there is no single thing at the source of all things. So the world is plurality, it's a mix up, it's an intersection. And that's the word I, I really wanna focus on tonight um, very briefly. So uh, Kant uh, epitomizes modernity and he epitomizes two movements of reason that are important to modernity, and we still rely on them to some extent. Uh, one is that we rely on categories of thought. So we, we rely on space, time, and mass. And these are very important because as sensations come into our minds, we have to place things somewhere. So that's space. We have to understand that, they're, they, that they endure. So that's time. And we have to know that uh, they have character. So a boulder, I know where it is. I know it's large. And I know if I kick it, it's going to hurt. These things to Kant are just normal. They're, they're universal truths that all human beings have innately. 
Uh, postmodernity um, accepts some things of Kant, but it has problems with Kant's morality because Kant also says that our moral principles have to be eternal principles as well. In other words, Morality uh, needs to operate on laws and are directed to virtues. So morality can't just be my feelings or my what I want uh, on a whim. That's not being moral. So morality has virtue as its aim. It has the will as its power. It has universality as its character. Now, that's all very fine, but postmodernity uh, has a problem with this part of Kant, I think. European morality of the 19th century justified colonialism as enlightenment. Enlightenment principles use categories or modern forms of knowledge to distinguish between black and white, male and female, civilized, savage, rational, and emotional. Because modern moral thinking relied on universal categories, it inevitably relied on dichotomies, these dichotomies of true and false. And I think that's at the heart of the problem of denial. In postmodern thought, these dichotomies are fictions. They are human creations. The dichotomies need to be deconstructed. The act of deconstruction involves this and sometimes is called intersectionality. It means that our experiences in the world are like standing at an intersection. At the intersection of a street and an avenue, you are neither on a street nor on an avenue. And if you're hit by a car, you are hit simultaneously on a street and an avenue. <laughs> so there's no categorical reasoning there. Um, the denial is the revenge of these modern dichotomies, at least in my sense, against these postmodern intersectionalities. So when we talk about anti-black racism, we are pointing to a systemic problem. In postmodern understanding, the solution is not simply the question of equality. That's the modern universal principle approach. We all agree with equality, but the question of racism is more dynamic and it happens at an intersection. Racism often includes sexism, it involves historic, economic, and political factors. So we cannot overcome systemic racism until we understand the different avenues and streets in the system that produces racism. Denial is modern categorical thinking, violently resisting postmodern intersectionality. Modernity placed a dichotomy on so-called man and nature, by using man deliberately there, and that doesn't work anymore. Modern mastery over nature denies a, a geocide that is of our own making. And modernity placed a dichotomy between whites and others that denies white privilege and tears apart the nation. We can no longer afford to be modern in our social thinking. So I feel denial needs to be interrupted because denial is itself a violent interruption of postmodern thinking based on a reluctance to, to give up these modern dichotomies. So denial needs to be interrupted because denial denies a postmodern future. And I think that future is incredibly important uh, not only to humanity, but to the earth itself.
Good evening. I'm Julia Kahn. I serve as a think tank analyst for the Westar Institute, and I also serve as co-chair of Westar's Praxis Forum. I'm a graduate of the of Union Theological Seminary. I'm a co-founder of the Athena Initiative, the host of a video podcast series called The Grounding, and I work in ministry, if that's not enough, with the United Church of Christ. I'm going to jump in taking kind of a social science. I have a sociology background and a social psychology tact to this conversation tonight. Paul Applebaum, a former president of the American Psychiatric Association, defines denial as the deliberate, often psychologically motivated neglect of information that would be too upsetting or anxiety-provoking to allow into one's belief system. In a 2011 study published in the Journal of Risk Research, Dan Cahan Hank Smith and Donald Brahman found that people perceive risk, and I would say by default, truth, through the lens of their values. Social psychology offers a window into denialism, describing it as motivated reasoning. Human beings often ground the root of our being in our identity. Our cultural affiliations, such as race, ethnicity, gender, and sexuality, but also our socioeconomic status, geographical location, or political party, are the lens by which we take in new information. The strength with which we identify with any or all of these categories directly impacts how we perceive new ideas. If we too strongly identify with any of our affiliations, then we quickly reject anything that might threaten it. This is what social scientists call cultural cognition. Cultural cognition is our human inclination to form beliefs about societal dangers that reflect and reinforce our commitments to particular visions of an ideal society. So much of our world today is running up against this right now. You know that. That's probably a big part of why you're here tonight. We're here to grapple with the paradox of human nature and the desire for a better tomorrow. How can we have honest public discourse that works towards a lived sense of justice in the face of denialism and conspiracy theories? It is important to recognize and accept where we ourselves have some skin in the game. What frame are we looking at the world through? What lens are the people we disagree with looking through? Is there any overlap or places of connection, perhaps a doorway from which we can enter into their world? or invite them into ours. As a minister and in my work with Westar, I am particularly interested in how all of this relates to lived practices of faith. In spiritual and religious terms, denial is a powerful and necessary part of the journey. So let me drop that bomb right here. There is a place for denial. However, I'd argue it's not the denial of facts, science, or conceptions of truth coming from another person's frame, which mark a life of faith. It is the denial of the self, which is at the heart of a rich and practiced spirituality. The ministry Jesus called Christians into can be succinctly summarized, as you probably already know, as loving God with all our hearts and with all our souls and loving our neighbors as ourselves. In living into this shared call, there are a few things asked of us, such as in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus tells his followers, if they want to be a part of the movement, they must deny themselves and follow him. There is a hard thing to live into. It's a hard thing to live into and lies at the heart 
of where Christian deniers of science, evolution, climate change, mask wearing, and on and on, where they go off. It's hard to put our cultural cognition into check and come to the world with an open mind and an open heart. It is much easier to let established norms dictate our thoughts and our actions, yet rising above our current understandings and our sense of comfort is what Jesus calls us to. If each one of us brought this into our own spiritual practice, then person by person, we can change the landscape of denial in America and across the world. Thank you. So my name is Ellie Elliott, and I've been a West Star Scholar for about 25 years, now part of the Christianity Seminar and a think tank analyst and the coordinator. So I'm going to be a little more concrete, perhaps. Um, I'd like to start by sharing this meme with you that relates to the role of the Bible in public discourse. And some of the issues we're considering around denial could be reflected on. I'm writing a post about this meme for the West Star Bible Search and Rescue website that's coming soon. And it's tempting to correct the punctuation here, but we will resist, okay? Um, you may have, and I hope you, you will have more thoughts about this, but just a few initial reflections. At the first interrupted event, Petra Carlson, now a co-chair, as Jordan mentioned, of the God Seminar, um, Swedish theologian, introduced her notion of first theology and second theology, a distinction that hinges on the nature of truth. In a nutshell, she proposes that first theology makes truth claims and assumes that truth is something that can be possessed and known. Second theology recognizes instead that truth is unhavable. Instead, second theology sees truth as truth production. She speaks of playing with truth in an email, um, not as making false truth claims, not playing fast and loose with the truth, but as a more collaborative, creative activity, collaborative and constructive. It's a construction. So what does this have to do with the, the meme? If we think about Westar's decades of scholarship about the Bible, we can see the assumptions of first theology at work. In truth claims about what the historical Jesus probably said or who the real Paul was, in efforts to debunk fundamentalist interpretations, um, truth claims are made. And it's all too tempting to see Westar's work as truth claims that provide counter ammunition, still implicitly weaponizing the Bible. I'm working on this issue in framing the work of the Bible Search and Rescue website. How do we de-weaponize the Bible while also offering the results of scholarship that can free people from interpretations that justify the kind of assaults that this meme threatens? Thinking about the website and Westar's educational work as moving us towards second theology, I find helpful. Westar's culture offers some beginnings with its scholarly collaboration 
holding creative discussions in public, as well as all the engagement of scholars with associates over the years. Yet the notion of haveable truth and our scholarship as making truth claims persists. In a world of false truth claims, a challenge to create a collaborative culture for thinking together based on the notion of truth construction might ultimately be more effective employing some of what all of you have said um, than simply trying to inflict facts that counter lies. What I suggest for us as Westar is a work in progress that transforms how we view our work, stated tersely that we begin rather than thinking for our constituencies, to begin emphasizing thinking with you, all of you out there. And that's some of what we're about in these interrupted events. I guess my, my first question uh, to you all is specifically about the role of um, the role of folks like us, Westar scholars and practitioners in particular, and what our respective expertises uh, might bring to bear on the kinds of questions that have been coming up so far tonight. Um, a number of us have relied on kind of historical critical research. We've relied on social scientific research. Um, what specifically do you think the role of a Westar scholar practitioner might be uh, in starting to navigate these questions of denial and conspiracy? Uh, I just want to say two things. One is it's very natural for people in scholarship to try to understand something and use critical tools to understand things. And I think all of our comments shared that to some extent and also uh, getting at how serious this is. Um, but I think there's certain things that just are not quite understandable. And uh, sometimes you can overthink things. And I, I think uh, a lot of times what's happening is highly emotional and not rational, really. Um, very reactive. And it's touching on a, a chord of some, some cultural chord, if you like, that is uniting people around what is uh, experienced as um, deeply divisive and hateful and hurtful and entirely misunderstanding uh, points, sometimes stealing language from progressive groups to undermine those groups. My favorite example is what would Jesus do? That came out of the social gospel. It was supposed to be Jesus would be a socialist. That's the answer to the question. Uh, become totally different. And I, I don't know, uh, sometimes I think scholars grapple with how do, how do you figure that out? And I, I think we've taken tries at it, but I'm going to say we're, we're not necessarily successful, but we've tried to find, find some things structurally about what's going on. I'd like to just uh, suggest, Andrew, I think your, your thoughts about rationality are part of the answer to your question, Jordan. Um, and I'd be happy to hear more about it, just how we, as scholars, praxis professionals, um, can think about our, you know, use the rational scholarship that we do, um, how, to, how that can fit with the uh, 
the need to reach out with, I think, empathic, um, was it empathic rationality, Andrew? Just uh, <laughs> rational empathy. Rational empathy, yes. Um, and sort of where our own um, first order of first system, how we, how that rational um, piece can work, but how we need to be understanding our own emotions too. So if you have more thoughts about it, I, I'm interested. I think this plays in with uh, what David was saying about um, modernism and postmodernism. And, uh, and I think uh, on that point that um, a lot of the kind of post-postmodern return to modernism or whatever you want to call it, I think that in itself is, is a very system one type reaction to the threat of postmodernism because um, postmodernism has somehow become equated with relativism. And I think that uh, touches a lot of, I think it's quite scary um, for a lot of people. And uh, so I think uh, to answer your question more directly, Ali, um, my own background as well is, is philosophy. And what, you know, people don't really know what a philosopher is supposed to do. Uh, so I think you know, this is exactly your, the point. What should we be doing? Um, and, and I often say, well, philosophy doesn't really teach you what to think. It doesn't give you any answers. It just teaches you how to think. And I think that that could be our role in this. Um, obviously, when these identity issues are so strongly felt, and when it's such a tribal reaction uh, to, to what, what's occurring um, socially, you can't tell someone, well, you're wrong. I mean, that's, that's not going to get anywhere. And so uh, I think instead, we just need to be as scholars, as kind of slower moving people, if you will, I think we need to be operating on that level where we simply present options in such a way that they are able to be perceived as options. Uh, now, as far as the system one, system two thing goes, system one is, it's the shared brain, uh, the core system, uh, the core networks that all mammals have, probably other mammals as well. Uh, and these are the core systems that operate below the level of consciousness. We're not able to access them with awareness. Uh, system two is, is operating on awareness, and that's where we're able to, um, to get in there. And, and actually, we can through practice, and this is kind of uh, what Aristotle actually stumbled upon, through lots of practice, we can actually change those intuitions, change those initial reactions that are automatic and pre-conscious. Uh, and, and that would be using system two to affect system one, for example. Jonathan Haidt, who I think was really fundamental in a lot of this research, he calls it uh, the, the rational tail on the emotional dog. So if you think about a dog, right, nearly all of it is the, the non-tail part, and that's our emotional intuitive part. And then our emotional reasoning is, is just that tiny little bit at the end there that, that wakes when we're happy. Yeah, I, I think that uh, uh, when you, when what I was trying to point to in my talk, I believe is consistent with what you brought up, Jordan, and and also what you brought up, David. 
um, in as much as as what's operating in this this system is a kind of felt a kind of felt reward um, a feeling of of self empowerment as opposed to a feeling of submission to authority so one is being sutured to a kind of community of discourse through this feeling of empowerment. So it is operating on an emotional level, right? And, um, and in evangelicalism, the sale is everything. So it's all about recruitment. Everything else is secondary. It's all about, about that, that, that set of feelings uh, instigating that experience. But the, but the other assertion that they made that I think we challenges us in a way is that this can be shaped and that there are tools for doing it. Um, just because it's system one and, you know, you can't just sort of uh, override it doesn't mean it can't be shaped. Now, that raises all sorts of ethical questions, of course, right? But it's also true. Yeah, well, I just, I wanted to say that, um, you know, I appreciate everything that's being said. And Ellie, I especially appreciated the meme that you shared. And, um, but I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, in all too many cases, I don't think that that gun uh, is being aimed at the devil. I think it's being aimed at other people. And, um and so I guess I definitely see West Star and, and the scholarship we do as a place that, I, I guess I see our scholarship as kind of a stepping stone or a bridge to a place where it's safe to ask the questions that will, will get you shot metaphorically if you ask them in other contexts where it's really anathema to challenge traditional authority or traditional structures of hierarchy. And if we can create that safe space, then I feel like we're achieving our, our goals. I mentioned briefly in, in my opening statement that denial is an investment. Um, in the sense that it's as a, as a protective mechanism, as a defense mechanism, it's protecting something in particular. And in turn, it's, it's investing back in that thing, whatever it happens to be. Right. Um, and I think as religion scholars and practitioners in, in particular in Christianity, um, one of the things that Christianity is is a system of debt and investment. Um, insofar as Christianity is about things like redemption and salvation, um, th those are economic um, concepts, right? Like Christianity is about salvation in the sense of saving something. There's, a, there's an economy to this. Uh, and so I think that on, a, on an analytical or conceptual level, 
One of the things that we as Westar scholars and practitioners are able to do and to bring to bear on conversations like this that might not be as obvious from other fields of thought is that we have tools to think about debt and redemption and investment uh, that other disciplines don't have. Um, and so since we have those tools, I think that we can we can see things behind and underneath uh, these types of denial and conspiracy that may not be obvious to, um, you know, your kind of standard historian or literary theorist or social scientist or economist or political theorist or something, right? That there is something inherently theological underneath all of this. And I don't just mean evangelical theology, uh, I, I mean something kind of deeper or beyond that, um, but that, you know, there are real fundamental investments that are being questioned and challenged and attacked, um, which is what brings out these expressions of denial. And I, I think we're poised to be able to talk about that in a way that others might not be. I think what Alice said about the fact that system one can be adjusted is is exactly uh, what I was also trying to emphasize. So I think that that's a really important point, uh, that we can use these tools, which Jordan has just mentioned, uh, to work on changing our own intuitions, our own emotional reactions. Uh, it has to be uh, purposive, and it has to be done with, with awareness and with practice. And, and it takes a long time, I think, to change one's emotional reactions. But um, emotional and intuitive and, and as, as well i think emotions and intuitions are intertwined but separate uh separate systems uh but i can just you know, give an example of uh you know living now in, in japan um my intuitions have changed a lot uh just from cultural uh input and awareness of how people expect one to behave in public and realizing that uh, one is not meeting those expectations causes one to self-reflect. And then through enough reflection, through enough practice, through enough time, uh, one changes. And so uh, just, you know, something as automatic as you're coming on the sidewalk and someone's approaching from the other side, where do you go? Well, as, as an American, I would, I would go to my right. Uh, but in Japan, you go to your left. And that's a tiny thing. But it's done without thought. Uh, and it's entirely automatic. And, and that, that is an intuitive reaction. And it's, it's nothing. It's meaningless. You know? But it's, it's all of these tiny little things that, that go into the day, the daily life, and social interaction that we're all part of in, in communities. And so I think that that is really important, realizing that system one can be adjusted, but also realizing how effortful that process actually is. I just wanted to follow up actually on what Andrew was saying about the retooling of system one through a process of self-reflection. And um, I think that's exactly what I'm trying to get at with self-denial, that perhaps the first part in doing that self-reflection is being able to come out of yourself and articulate just what it is, who it is that you are, where do you, what is your identity, where does the group that you come from, what is the lens that you come from, and then how can you come above that? So how do you put it down and say, yes, like for me, I, I'm a cisgendered woman, I understand that, I'm gay, 
And I can set that aside as I think about what is important in my life and what do I want to work on and self-reflect. But first, I have to know who I am and how to get a little bit beyond the labels that I, I think that I am. I, I guess I could piggyback on that really quickly to say that there's um, a theorist named Julia Kristeva who wrote a wonderful book called Strangers to Ourselves. And I think what Julia is saying is that somehow we have to stop being strangers to ourselves if we're going to be able to be in community with other people. Thanks for listening to this episode of Interrupted, the West Art Institute podcast. If you would like to learn more about the West Art Institute or become a member, visit westartinstitute.org. Interrupted is produced by Jordan Miller and Matthew Baker. We hope you'll join us again next time.